This call is now being recorded. Uh, yeah, I I think first I want to recognize that not everybody has the choice to buy local, which is indicative of larger systemic problems. The local food movement you know, certainly isn't about shaming people for not being able to buy local. It's um, about encouraging people to do their best when they can. My name is Anastasia, and I'm here again with another episode of That's Rad, a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. The purpose of That's Rad is to connect with you, our members, shoppers, and fellow community human beings, whatever you want to call yourself. How have you all been since the last time we talked? Well, since the last time I talked at you, which is sometimes how normal conversations go anyways. I've been pretty good, thanks for asking. I think I'm starting to get the hang of this whole podcast thing, but I could totally prove myself wrong in this next episode. Stay tuned to find out. I feel like we're at the point in this journey of this podcast where I know enough to say I know like 10% what I'm doing, which is pretty good in my mind. (laughs) Saying it out loud does not make it sound like I know what I'm doing. Um, but I know more than before. But at the other hand, I also am very self-aware. I don't wanna say self-conscious, even though that's what it is. I'm very self-aware of everything that I'm doing. Like how I say the word Littleton, like really weirdly. I would really like to petition this town and this co-op to change our name so I never have to hear myself say the word Littleton ever again. I also have just I discovered this by like episode one that I start every question with so. Like I need to find better transition words. If any English teachers out there or something wants to give me one of those lists with like ways to start questions or transition between phrases, let a girl know. Y'all, like time is flying. It is August. It is like mid-August. My brain really doesn't understand how, but somehow it is. I'm just still kind of like hanging out in March in my mind. Last month, which is even weird to think about July being last month, I was talking with Jesse, our favorite graphic designer, about doing taxes and him talking about the deadline and I said no 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 the deadline's been extended till July 15th and he was like yeah that's like next week and I lost my mind but now we're in August whether I like it or not or choose to admit it but the great thing about being August aside from this year being almost over is that it's Eat Local Month here at the co-op and throughout the state of New Hampshire. August has been designated as New Hampshire Eats Local Month. And the idea behind Eat Local Month is to really raise awareness about all the different local food options people have to educate people on how to eat local and the benefits of eating local 
and to just raise awareness of what happens when you eat local. So to honor the month of August, that is what this next episode of That's Rad is going to focus on. Before we jump into some more interesting stuff, I think it's important to lay down what it means when we say local. Now, in my mind, this is a little ironic, but to be a local product at the co-op, it has to be produced or somehow altered in either the state of New Hampshire, Vermont, or within 100 miles of the Littleton Food Co-op. Now, first, when I say produced or altered, there are some things that can't just can't be grown in New Hampshire, Vermont, or like New England. But we still have products that contain those things here and we sell them as local. That's because there are artisans and producers within our local boundaries that somehow modify, enhance, could be another word, these products, and then they can be considered local. Another part of this that I just find so interesting is definitely when I was growing up, when I thought of local foods if I ever thought of them I really thought such small scale your neighbor's garden the farm up the street and that was it however by having a wider picture of the idea of local you get so much more biodiversity and options to really make it more accessible to people and make people really understand that it is possible to incorporate eating local into your regular lifestyle rather than just having that one-off product or that one-off vegetable you can find only three months out of the year. It can really be part of your everyday life. Hi, Samantha. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, of course. No problem. Samantha is the communications coordinator for the New Hampshire Food Alliance. Uh, Samantha, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and also about the New Hampshire Food Alliance? Sure. So I'll start uh, with describing the Food Alliance. Um, So the New Hampshire Food Alliance is New Hampshire's uh, only statewide network focused on our New Hampshire's on our state's food system. Um, we're focused on improving both the farm and food economy of New Hampshire. So whatever, uh, you know, form that might take, including food uh, security, land access, um, seed resources, um, market development, all of that kind of stuff. So it really um, is a broad, we have a broad scope. Um, we connect partners from every single region of the state, um, also along the borders of Maine, uh, Vermont, and Massachusetts, organizations, businesses, individuals, and, you know, everyone has to eat. So we really consider everybody part of the network, and it's not at all, like, member-based or exclusive based on where you work, where your, you know, life experiences have taken you. You don't have to be technically, like, working in the food system to be involved. We started around 2013. We've been expanding every year, and uh, our partners have, each year, uh, partners have said that they feel more aligned um, and connected with each other than ever before. So I would say that connection is our biggest, both our biggest priority and our biggest um, area of success. So, you know, most of our partners are doing 
the more tangible on the ground work and the Food Alliance is focused on connecting people, um, like convening gatherings and meetings and making sure that nobody is really reinventing the wheel. People, you know, connecting to each other has a lot of value so that we can get more uh, work done in the state. And as far as myself, um, I started with the Food Alliance as an intern in 2017. And I started working as their communications coordinator in 2018 um, after I graduated from UNH with their uh, Sustainable Agriculture and Food Systems degree. So I've been with them for a few years um, and have been really lucky to be able to stay with them both before and after I graduated from UNH. Uh, when you're describing New Hampshire Food Alliance, I really liked how you were talking about how food really is this sort of connector between all of us. Like we all have to eat and we all mm-hmm. eat food. And even if you're not in the food system, it's still a way you can connect to everyone who is and really see kind of a lot of commonalities between everyone living in New Hampshire. So you were also one of the kind of lead coordinators of this big event we're in right now which is New Hampshire Eats Local Month. And New Hampshire Eats Local Month is a month-long celebration of local food and the hardworking people who provide it for us. How did New Hampshire Eats Local Month come to be? Yeah, so um, it started before, you know, before I started working um, with the Food Alliance. But uh, New Hampshire Eats Local Month originally was started by Seacoast Eat Local, and that's an organization, a uh, regional organization based in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Um, and they, they focus on the food system as well. They're a pretty well connected organization, I would say. But they started it as a way to move forward the local food movement in New Hampshire, just like the rest of the country in the past, you know, a few years, decade or so. We've seen local food becoming an increasingly popular consumer choice. I think people are more aware of it every year. It seems like it's growing a little bit. So after Seacoast Eat Local started it, after a few years, it moved on to another organization called Bananak by Local, which is in the Bananak region, of course. And that was headed by Jen Risley, who remains a lead coordinator today. Um, and she's also been just really valuable, uh, just a really great resource for the month and continues to be. So I just want to give her a shout out. Bananak by Local ended as an organization New Hampshire's local month needed a new home, so the New Hampshire Food Alliance just seemed like a natural choice given our broad connections throughout the state. So we started the move-in as like a team effort. It was planned by a handful of network partners when we took it over in 2018, and we've been growing each year. Um, New Hampshire's local month has been, so we have more partners, and we're gathering more steam, it seems. And I also want to uh, mention that Governor Sununu, this is the first year that he's officially released a proclamation declaring August New Hampshire's local month, so I'm really happy about that, and I just want to say that was made possible by Gail McWilliam Jelly at the Department of Agriculture, so I'm really grateful to her. Um, so you hinted a little with like these partnerships and now going from the seacoast to Manadnock to the whole state. What exactly happens during New Hampshire Eats Local Month? There's a lot happening. Um, I can't even keep track of it all. Uh, <laughs> it really, it's a partner driven effort right now. We have, this year we have, um, 
over like around 110, 112 partners. I would say that the campaign is really driven by social media. I've seen a lot more engagement this year than previous years, both from partners and individuals. And, you know, we have 110 or so official partners, but I've definitely seen, you know, some people who haven't been official partners just spreading the word and posting. And that's really all we ask people to do during the month is, you know, work really hard to like get that message out there. Seems like people are really doing that. Uh, we try to push forward what others are doing all across the state and making sure to amplify their efforts to a bigger audience. We think that there's a lot of, you know, food system work going on in the state that people might not know about. I know that I certainly didn't before I started working uh, for the Food Alliance. So we try our best to share things from our partners or just, you know, what's going on from around the state, events, news, what's happening. And for the past couple of years, we've also been putting on a online scavenger hunt. People can win prizes, and they're they're pretty good prizes. And they are donated by our partners, which I'm really happy about. Um, it's really generous of them. And it, some of the partners, some of the uh, prizes, have, you know, they all have to do with local food. Some of them are food itself. So there are really the prizes themselves help to push forward the message. But this year, scavenger hunt. We have shifted to a bingo game, and people can find out more about that online, but that's entirely local food themed as well. How did you personally become involved in this movement? I know, I'm sure at UNH, there are plenty of places you could have interned. Um, So what drew you to this idea of the Food Alliance and for eating local? Um, Was it even something you were aware of before it became part of your job? I think that um, it was to some degree, um, starting in high school, I guess, I have always felt like a connection to to food and agriculture. Um, You know, I didn't grow up on like a farm or anything. I grew up, you know, in Concord. kind of in the suburban neighborhood, but I've always been really interested in it. So um, I think when I started, when I started at UNH, um, the sustainable ag program is really the reason why I went to that school. Um, and I was really impressed by the program. So it's, it's something that's always interested me and it just continues to grow with my passion. That's great to hear. And I'm glad then that you did find a job in in something that really speaks to you in that way. So shifting a little bit, generally, why is it so important for people to eat locally sourced food? Like, why are we making such a big deal of this? Uh, I would say the biggest reason for a lot of people and the most compelling reason is that uh, purchasing and eating local food has a really major and immediate effect on those around you, you know, your community. Um, you're benefiting real people that you probably know, uh, neighbors, friends, you know, you might even have family working in the food system, whether that's um, at a restaurant, at a grocery store, or even farming. Um, the food system is not limited to to food producers themselves. It's It covers a lot of areas and a lot of different industries and sectors. Um, and it's really important for for many people to know that, you know, your money isn't going into the pockets of like a large multinational billion dollar conglomerate uh, staying in New Hampshire with our residents. And I, I think that's something that folks can really feel proud of. 
Um, besides that, it's often it's often better for the environment. Um, your food, you know, has to travel less versus coming from you know maybe California, um, which is three thousand miles away, obviously. So you're using less um, carbon emissions that way. But also, a lot of small farms use regenerative methods that build the health of our environment. I'm not going to say that all all smaller small farms do that, but um, many of them do, and a lot of them are, you know, organic if that's important to folks, um, whether or not they're actually certified. Uh, it also tastes better uh, because the food is at its most flavorful and at its freshest. Uh, food in your grocery store is probably, like I said, traveled from hundreds or even thousands of miles away. And crops from, you know, large agribusinesses are really bred exclusively for heightened production value versus versus what it might taste like. So that's why, you know, heirloom tomatoes, for example, taste a lot better. And those are really grown by local producers. So eating local, the benefits really just cover the whole scope. I mean, we talked about community, we talked about health, environment, and just like literal taste. I, I always love that last point of just it literally tastes better. Yeah, and also this is something that we have on our website, but there's on our website we have like the local $5 pledge. And just to highlight the benefit to the economy, the point is that, you know, considering our population, if every person in the state spent only $5 a week on local food, then we would add over $338 million to our state's economy in just one year. Just for five dollars wow. a week. Like five dollars is not a lot for most people. So that's great mm-hmm. to hear. Um, so then why do you think people don't buy local? Is there something that's stopping people? Uh yeah. I I think first I want to recognize that not everybody has the choice to buy local, which is indicative of larger systemic problems. The local food movement you know, certainly isn't about shaming people for not being able to buy local. It's um, about encouraging people to do their best when they can. The most usual reason, I think, is is the cost. People usually cite that as a concern. But I've often found local products to be comparable to what I would find in the grocery store, especially if it's in season. And when you consider the benefits of local food, I think it often outweighs the cost. I mean, you know, you think about buying local, like, real maple syrup versus, you know, whatever the corn syrup stuff is that you can buy at the grocery store. Um, It's definitely, I mean, there's no comparison to the cost um, or even the health benefits as well. Um, I'd also emphasize that people don't have to buy completely completely local, right? I mean, you don't have to get all of your food locally. It's just it's great to do what you can. And I also think there are real issues of accessibility. Um, I would like to see a lot more local products within grocery stores um, versus, you know, just at farmer's markets or at uh, small co-ops like the Littleton Food Co-op, which is a great place. Um, uh, farmers market can be, you know, they're great places to go to, but not every community has them. Not everyone can get to them. The barriers are improving each year. Uh, there are great programs going on in the state, like Granite State Market Match, which will double your SNAP benefits to get you more food on the same dollar. But I also think another reason is that, you know, maybe people haven't necessarily stopped to really think about local food. I, 
our food system is not really a topic that's regularly focused on in either our education system or in media. So I think that's what this campaign is all about, right? Getting getting people more aware of the movement and considering the the benefits. Yeah, I really I just really love the point you were saying about how we're not asking you to go a hundred percent fully in and only buy local. We're really just mm-hmm. asking like do what you can and if doing what you can means you can't actually afford to to buy those higher priced tomatoes it means you're sharing it on social media. And if that's what you can do, like, that's what you can do. So I I really appreciate that you mentioned. And I think you said, like, we're not trying to shame anyone who's not. We're just trying to to maybe tell you a little bit more about what happens if and when you do do it. Um, So at this point... It feels like we're kind of avoiding something if we don't talk about COVID-19. COVID is one of the reasons we kind of launched this podcast. So I did want to take a second to talk about its impact on our food systems, both from like the producer perspective and the consumer. So first on the producer side, how have New Hampshire supply chains been impacted over the past few months? Uh, I think that first, it really impacted wholesale markets like restaurant sales, you know, grocery store sales. Uh, people were also staying at home, going out less to, you know, maybe visit their farmer's market or their farm stand. Farmer's markets were delayed in a lot of areas um, while people were staying at home, for example. But one of the major benefits of these local food systems that producers are able to respond to these to these changes uh, really quickly, which large agribusinesses are just simply not made to offer that level of fast change, um, which you can see with the early supply interruptions within grocery stores, right? I mean, nobody, there was, you know, things were sold out all over the place um, in grocery stores. And it has, it, I think it has really pushed demand forward. Food producers have done a great job of pivoting their markets to more direct consumer sales um, and just making large changes to the way that they run their businesses, including offering delivery and online ordering. So many producers are uh, doing a really great job of that right now. All across the state, I've also heard that that demand has skyrocketed. A lot of farms, food producers are selling maybe at like twice their normal rate. So, uh, yeah, I think part of that is the supply chain issues that I mentioned earlier. Local and small farms are just in a better spot to offer to offer food that might have been sold out at grocery stores. But I also think that a major positive change or a positive highlight that we've seen from COVID-19 is that it's a major economic challenge. But because of that, there's also been this really incredible community movement um, of people wanting to support each other. Uh, so there's a lot of room for positivity, I think, in this in this day and age. Yeah, I think in terms of food, we've definitely seen both the really harrowing negative effects of it, but we also have seen these communities coming together to make sure that everyone is getting the food and the resources we need. And I definitely recognize when you were talking about maybe 
back in like March and June, um, we saw those definite supply issues and not to say us at the Littleton Food Co-op didn't have any because we certainly did, but I think we fared a little bit better because we had so many local producers we could rely on that we had um, multiple sources we could get things from versus your standard run-of-the-mill grocery store that only has maybe one or two suppliers. Um, We found that we were sometimes able to fill the gaps a little bit better. Um, And I think you hinted at a little on the consumer side of this whole pandemic, but directly, have you heard of any um, first-hand encounters or any data that shows, like, people's opinions or literal, like, dollars changing to be more local during this whole thing? I think that's something people are certainly more aware of, both from the positive community demand and the supply chain um, issues. I've never seen so many articles um, in, like, major news sources about about the local food movement and what this means for the food system. Uh, so that has been really great to see. I just think it's getting more attention than than it normally would. It's being brought to the forefront. And, I mean, obviously we wish that none of this would have happened, but kind of not uh, – it feels weird to say it's great that it coincides with Eat Local Month, but, like, it, mm-hmm. it also helps raise awareness. So then – what would the ideal future New Hampshire economy look like from the perspective of someone who's a real champion of the Eat Local movement? Like, perfect utopia, what would it be? You know, of course, we'd like to see the current demand to stay level. Uh, the pandemic, I think, has really exposed issues within our food system that have kind of been hidden under the surface for a a long time. Um, So it's really important to especially consider potential interruptions in the future. Um, I think it's like very, very possible that we will see continued interruptions in the food system, especially when you consider climate change, for example, Um, you know, maybe another public health crisis, other, other interruptions in the food system. I don't think that this is something that's just a one-off interruption. It very well could and maybe will happen again in our lifetimes where this is really important. Also think in an ideal future that the entire population would have the same access to buying local food. Um, It should really be a feasible option for for everybody. So I, I think that would be ideal is that these cracks within the food system are kind of smoothed over. Those are two really great points. Um, So then what would be more of like a realistic future, do you think? I don't think, I don't think any of that is unrealistic. Um, I I think it's more about the timeframe in which it happens. Um, You know, these are not, these are really deep systemic issues um, in our in our country and across the world. I think it's more about the time frame in which it happens. We're not going to be able to change overnight, and um, I don't think anyone's expecting that. So I think that we 
are in a more opportune moment than ever before in our lifetimes to be able to really create um, really huge positive systemic change. Um, wrapping up a little bit, what would you say your favorite New Hampshire local product or maybe just brand is? We always like to try to encourage people to try something new and local, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. It's a little cliche, but I absolutely love apple season. There are so many varieties of fresh apples. I tried apples last year that were variety called New Hampshire, so I purposely got those, and they were really good. Um, and who doesn't I've love to eat about apples? Yeah, there are just so many. I mean, there are apple farms out there with, like, 50 varieties of apples. It's great. And I also really love locally produced milk. I think it's a lot creamier um, and fuller tasting. And, of course, uh, New Hampshire maple syrup as well, which everyone thinks of Vermont maple syrup. But I think New Hampshire has great maple syrup, too. So I I always try to get that. So what should someone do if they want to learn more about New Hampshire Eats Local Month beyond what we talked about today? Definitely visit our website, NewHampshireEatsLocal.com. We've specifically designed the website to kind of be like a one-stop shop uh, for a bunch of different resources. So there's, you know, every activity that is happening part of New Hampshire Eats Local Month online. There's also a great toolkit um, for businesses and organizations to push forward the message and uh, our social media pages as well where we're sharing all of these all of these different things. Also our website um, and social media have been, been trying to show where people can go to buy local. So on our website for example we have regional guides made by different organizations across the state for you know collecting where um, where people can go to get local food. Uh, UNH Cooperative Extension um, has also created really amazing farm and food product map, um, and that's on our website, too. What can someone do to support this movement beyond the month of August? Because, I mean, if you couldn't tell from our conversation, like, we really want this to go beyond August and not just September 1st comes and you forget what the word local means. So what can someone do beyond this month? Uh, yeah, it's great you asked that because this year we've actually designed a larger campaign that's just New Hampshire Eats Local. Um, so New Hampshire Eats Local Month is just one part of that, right? Um, so, so that was really the idea of this year's campaign from the start due to the changes caused by COVID. Uh, the New Hampshire Eats Local Month website and our social media pages will continue past August, but I also think taking an interest in our local food system is incredibly important. I can't place enough value on that. Knowing your farmer, knowing where your food comes from, there are, you know, local products available the entire year long. Uh, This, you know, the summer is typically considered like the ideal time to go buy local food because farmer's markets, et cetera, are happening. Um, But it extends way past harvest season. Um, You know, in the winter, a lot of farms will still offer like local greens, for example, or um, value-added products, winter squashes. So there's no lack of choice um, all throughout the year. But yeah, I really think so many of these ideas that we maybe focus on extra during this month um, aren't just things that can happen during the summer. So I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, New Hampshire Eats Local will be a continuing initiative um, 
past August uh, 31st or whatever. And is there anything else you really want to make sure people leave knowing, either about local food, about uh, where to get it, anything else you feel like um, haven't touched on that's really important? Well, I think as far as the food system goes, I think at this time it really feels important to highlight the um, fight for racial equity. So much of the inequities of access and power in our food system stem from from the historical racial injustice that the U.S. was founded on. Um, I, I don't think that's something that people necessarily see as tied to our food system, but um, it really is a lot of the root problems of, of the food system come from, from racial inequities, in particular people of color. For example, are far more likely to face food insecurity, let alone having access to local food. And New Hampshire is, you know, 95% white. So I think maybe we might not see it as an everyday immediate problem here, but it definitely still is. Um, it definitely, it definitely exists. So I think the intersection of the food system and racial equity has to be, just absolutely has to be a major focus moving forward if we want to create positive change. I could not agree more. I was on my side of the phone snapping, but I, but not really because I didn't want <laughs> the weird audio to pick up, but, but I could not agree more. And I think sometimes in New Hampshire, easy for people to either maybe accidentally forget or purposely forget that this is an issue still here. Um, but you're right. It does 100% directly tie to our food system than to the, to the concept of eating local. Um, so, how can people stay connected with New Hampshire East Local and New Hampshire Food Alliance? I know you were teasing us some social media. Do you do you have your handle? Uh, yeah. So for New Hampshire East Local, it's at NH East Local. Uh, we have Instagram and Facebook, um, and the Food Alliance, which also has Instagram and Facebook. Um, it's at NH Food Alliance. Um, our website, of course, uh, NewHampshireLocal.com for that campaign. And the Food Alliance website um, is currently undergoing changes, which will be revealed soon, but our website is up and active. It's New Hampshire Food Alliance or NHFoodAlliance.com. And our website has a newsletter list um, with current statewide happenings. We send it out once a month. Um, so, you know, you, your inbox won't get flooded or anything. Um, it's a good collection of, of food system news and resources that's going on across New Hampshire and beyond. And then we will definitely uh, promote and tag those resources. I think that's all. I mean, I could ask you a million more questions, but I don't want to take up more of your time. So thank you again so much, Samantha, for coming on the podcast and talking about all things local. Yeah, I'm really excited about, about New Hampshire's Local Month every year, but this year it just especially seems um, important to promote. So thank you for having me. Next, I took a drive over to St. Johnsbury, Vermont to talk with Eric of Joe's Brook Farm. He had a couple minutes to talk about his family's experiences on the farm. And I hope you're as excited as I was to hear what he has to say. Okay, would you like to introduce yourself and tell everyone where we're standing right now? 
Uh, sure, my name is Eric Scofstead and I own Joe's Brook Farm with my wife Mary and we are in Barnett, Vermont. Uh, right now we are outside of our farm stand on Joe's Brook Road along the beautiful Joe's Brook, hence that's where we got the farm name. Uh, we're a 20 acre organic vegetable and strawberry farm and we lease additional land along the Pesumsic River and grow the majority of our crops there. Can you tell us a little bit about how Joe's Brook Farm came to be? What's your story? Um, so we, Mary's from this town, as the crow flies from only about a mile away, not even uh, just the next river over. And so that's how we landed in this area. And then we'd always worked on, uh, Mary had worked on a couple of farms and I had worked on a farm. and. We were interested in it, and then it, we sort of uh, stumbled into some opportunities to lease land and uh, acquired some greenhouses and got into the St. Johnsbury Farmer's Market. And then we were up and running. And um, we kind of, just, uh, our farm has also coincided. We started our farm just a year after the Littleton Co-op started up. And so we've been able to grow over the years with the co-op. And that's been a pretty important part of our farm's success. The co-op and the farm have, have just sort of matched each other in uh, demand and in production as the years have gone on. I'm glad we could be a part of your journey and that also you're, you have been a part of ours over the past 10, 11 years. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a member of this like Vermont, Northern Vermont farming community? There's so much to do with agriculture around here, but most people only know what they buy really. So what's, what's it like actually doing it? It's wonderful to be a farmer in Vermont in the Northeast Kingdom because Vermont is incredibly supportive of their farmers. And I think that extends to, you know, the northern parts of New Hampshire as well. There's great extensions agents, there's great sort of other support systems, and then there's great customer sort of uh, awareness uh, and just appreciation for what we're doing. So this is a wonderful spot to farm, weather aside. But I guess yeah. there's weather everywhere. <laughs> So how is it different? Can you tell us, I'm sure, like, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to do both this and the farm tour in what I'm guessing is your busiest time of year. So can you talk a little bit about what it's like being on the farm during the summer versus in the winter? There's there's work year round. And this is actually, I love August. August is, uh, especially this time of August, there's a little bit of a window for stuff like this. Once we reach September, we're pushing really hard to get some of those big storage crops out of the ground that are still sizing up right now. We're pushing really hard to get cover crops in. But right now, uh, we're just sort of harvesting, harvesting, maintaining, weeding, watering, and there's a little bit more space for this. July, you know, strawberry season, late June, boy, that is the busiest time of the year for us. So we'll maintain sort of this level of energy and sort of activity and staffing right through Thanksgiving. And then uh, we'll pack out with another uh, couple employees right through Christmas. And then into January and February, we'll do some planning and some maintenance and some uh, purchasing and then be planting by the middle of February again in the greenhouses. Depending on the season, we'll even pick spinach that time of year which you'll find at the co-op 
first. So um, keep your eyes open for that. Basically by March, there's crew back on and we kind of add a crew member a month until everyone starts back up in May, so. At your highest point, how many people do you have working at the farm? Um, right now we have uh, six seasonal employees, sort of one part-time employee. Yep. Are they from the area or do yep. they come near and far? Everyone lives here currently, uh, but they have uh, come here from other parts of the country sometimes, some of them. So in talking about the different harvest cycles, do you have a favorite thing that you love to harvest, plant, or otherwise work with? Um, or is it like your children, you can't pick yeah, one? <laughs> I mean, we're, we're sort of famous for our tomatoes. That's a crop that does really well with sort of our, our experience and our soils and our location. I like the challenge of growing strawberries. That's really enjoyable for me. Um, and spinach is another crop that uh, just seems to kind of always come up roses for us. Yeah. So. Well, I can definitely attest to how amazing your strawberries and your tomatoes are. I absolutely love them. And now I can't wait for like next summer to come back. So again, with people, a lot of times people, when they buy local, they really only understand up until the point where they're like, oh, this sign says local, that means I'm supposed to buy it. But they don't really understand like how it impacts beyond that. Can you tell a little bit about what it means when someone buys locally, buy from Joesbrook Farm, how it impacts you and the farm? Yeah, definitely. We are only in business because of the direct-to-consumer um, sort of way that we sell, you know, and, and I kind of almost include the co-op, even though that might be thought of as we wholesale to the co-op and then they um, sell it from there. But all of our customers, whether it's at the co-op or at our farm stand or farmer's markets, they know us and they know our farm. And so I think of that as kind of almost direct to consumer. And that allows us to um, get a little higher price than if we were uh, just wholesaling it to um, regionally to Whole Foods or somewhere like that. And then that higher price lets us hire people who wanna work and live in this part of the country. And so right now we have, you know, our crew ranges in ages from 20 to age 30. And that's a, a demographic group, an age group that um, we want in this part of the country. And there's not a lot of, I mean, other than the co-op is also a great employer. Of, of sort of that age of people and people at that point in their lives. And it lets us create a community for our employees and um, to really kind of be a, be a business that they can think about uh, returning to year in year and possibly even, uh, you know, building a life around. And so it really is, I mean, that's the main impact is when you buy local, you are helping to, to to support an employer, because farms are employers in your community. Um, it, so we're, you know, the farm is also a working landscape. Um, and I think everyone understands the that the landscape in New England and in Vermont and in New Hampshire is the creation of um, the natural environment, but also the actions of the people that work the land. And so when you buy local, you help to 
um, sustain those farms that sort of create and sustain the landscape that makes this place look the way it does and makes everybody want to live here. Without farms, that landscape can simply won't be maintained and will start to disappear. Um, so obviously you sell at the co-op, as you mentioned, where else can people find your products if they can't make it over there? Um, so we are at three farmers markets the, this year and four on a normal year. But this year you can find us in Littleton on Sundays at the farmers market, 10 to one. Saturdays in St. Johnsbury and Fridays at the Lindenville Farmers Market. We also have our farm stand right here and you can find us at White's Market uh, some times of the year with a few crops in particular. Carrots during the winter time, greens occasionally in the spring. Um, we have a CSA and we do wholesale a few crops through a co-op called Deep Root Co-op which sells them all around the, 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 the country. Great, and if people want to stay connected with you, see what's happening on the farm, how can they do that? Um, the best way is probably to uh, join our CSA to really um, get a firsthand sort of relationship with the farm. If you'd like to uh, just check us out on Facebook at Joesbrook Farm, that's another great way, or on Instagram at Joesbrook Farm. Um, there's uh, updates, we have a staff member that updates and maintains those social media sites. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Eric. It was great to talk about Joe's Brook, what it's like to be a farmer, and all of that great stuff. Wonderful. Thank you. So like I said at the top of the episode, the product of the week looks a little different this time around. I'm so excited to have Matt Brothers, owner of Kingdom Kombucha, on to co-host the segment. He's going to talk about why you should check out his products, but also more about his company and what it's like to be a local producer. This call is now being recorded. So now I'm joined by Matt Brothers, owner and basically everything else for Kingdom Kombucha, as he'll tell you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Matt. Oh, thanks for having me, Anastasia. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, so to start us off, uh, for our listeners who might not be aware of your company, can you tell us a little about Kingdom Kombucha? Sure. So we're um, located in Northeast Kingdom, Vermont. So it's a very, uh, I won't say remote, but it's a, it's a rural area. Um, and we're a small family-run business, and we've been in business for about, uh, well, six years if you count our farmers markets. Um, that's how we started. And uh, but we've been we've been bottling and canning for the last four years, and uh, really working on building up our, our local reputation and trying to spread our, our product. But we're we're hands-on family business. That's awesome. So six years, in my mind, really in the past couple years, kombucha has become this like cool, hip thing to either drink and especially now with some people having a lot more time on their hands because of corona and things like that. I think we're seeing kind of an increase in people trying to become home brewers. How did you get into it before it was cool? Or maybe in your mind, it's always been cool. Well, you know, everything is cooler in California first. So, <laughs> I, uh, I have a couple brothers. I have a couple brothers living out in California, and they they told me about it um, about six years ago. And 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 uh, as a family, including my brothers and parents, were always into home brewing and growing things. And and uh, 
so I gave it a try um, quite a while ago. And, and uh, to be honest, it took me a while to uh, to really connect with the taste of it. Uh, probably it was my partly my brewing, and partly it was just something different. But um, I really loved the brewing process, and I just loved the whole the whole project um, and that fact that I could do it at home. So it was a lot of fun, and that just kind of got me started from there. And uh, and there was a, there was a little bit of kombucha here in Vermont. Aquavite was was kind of uh, um, out there, so that that was kind of a, a a company that I could look to just for for taste and, and how they were doing it. Um, so it it seemed uh, it seemed new, but but it was definitely happening on the West Coast. Mm, yeah, like like you said, many things do, but I don't think you're alone in the sense of having to acclimate yourself to the taste of it. I just think of that viral kombucha girl meme that came around also a couple years ago where she's trying <laughs> it. She's like, mm, wait. No, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's um, that's a lot of people's first thoughts. So it's it's good to hear from someone who's making it that you had that kind of same experience yourself. Yeah, and, I, and as I began making it, you know, and uh, my kids loved it right away. So that was, you know, kids don't have those filters necessarily. And uh, and, we, and we began to realize, you know, starting uh, to realize how healthy it was for the kids and it's just a low-sugar drink. So that that also kind of motivated us to keep making it. That's a, that's a great reason. Um, so to my understanding, you came to Vermont and then started Kingdom Kombucha. So did you ever have any maybe doubts or reservations about keeping your business here in northern Vermont, where, as you said, it's, it's a little isolated, a little, a little remote from maybe the rest of the country or the world? Yeah, that's part of part of why we came to Vermont was for that reason. Um, and, I, and I was a teacher, and I was we were um, my wife and I were teaching um, internationally. We came from Brazil um, before here, and international teaching. We're we're living in cities, and so we really wanted to get out. Um, and, I, and I grew up uh, in the Northeast, so we wanted to get out and um, into a rural place. So it really was more like the chicken or the egg. We wanted to to figure out what we could do to live here more than what uh, have a business and where should we move. So um, so basically, you know, there are some challenges. It, there's certainly more um, distance between people, but um, this is exactly where we wanted to be. So, and, and if we can, as we grow, employ some people locally, that's that would be great, you know, just to kind of support our local economy. So it's really, uh, really no question we want to be here. And it, it certainly probably takes a little more work than if we were in a more populated area, but it's definitely worth it. Since you brought up employing people locally, uh, that really brings up one of our big topics today, which is Eat Local Month. And since it's Eat Local Month, I'm just curious to know if eating local was an idea you were aware of or a practice before you became a business owner. When we first came to Vermont, we we began to realize that the the, the whole local food scene was really uh, really something special. So we got really excited about that, and that's one of the reasons we started uh, brewing kombucha. Um, and part of that was the farmers markets, which I had really never experienced before. And in the Northeast Kingdom, you know, every Lindenville, Burke, Danville, there's all these farmer markets, farmers markets. So we we got really excited about that. And the other thing is the craft beer scene um, in Vermont, which is sort of um, similar. To kombucha we're making a we're making a craft beverage and so um we really became aware when we got here and that's part of what really got us excited about kombucha i think it's it's really interesting too now that you're almost seeing 
um, the craftier world and kombucha combine in a way in that you're having alcoholic kombuchas and you can go into some bars and there's a kombucha option for those who don't want um, recreational levels of alcohol, we'll say, because um, there is alcohol in kombucha. Um, but it, it's funny that those things are so similar now. We're seeing them merge a little bit. Definitely. And I think that, that what you said about the, the non-alcoholic option of kombucha is great. I mean, if, if you go to a um, – we don't have so many bars anymore, but you do have lots of craft breweries yeah. where you can bring the whole family. So to have that kombucha option is great. Um, and, and the hard kombucha is interesting as well. That's a whole new a whole new field coming up here. It really is. Um so staying on this topic, um, how is your company involved in your community? So part of our um, our mission um, is, and it's something I really want to expand, is, is uh, as, as a teacher, um, as a former teacher, I'm really excited about environmental education. And, um, and so we're, we're always looking for ways to support environmental education um, and our community in general. And so one thing we have is um, a percentage of every um, bottle we sell, we, we put into a fund and then we are able to donate that. Um, so we, we've had some small donations to, to our local school, schools and certain uh, education projects. Uh, but going forward, I really want to expand that. I think that to me is kind of real personal to me, and it's it's really kind of why we're in business is to is to kind of have that community connection. Um, environmental education is kind of the way we want to do that. So so going forward, I'm going to be looking for more substantial ways to to contribute to the the regional community through environmental education. So that that's really on the radar for this next year. That's awesome. I'm glad you can use this platform to to uh, also pursue a personal passion. That's great. Um, so I think people sometimes can talk with a big gain about the idea of eating local, but they might not actually understand. Or I'll say people, when they talk about eating local, sometimes focus on maybe how it impacts themselves and they're doing it either to make themselves feel good morally or feel good health-wise, but we don't necessarily always get back to the producer themselves and how it impacts them. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about how you and your business are impacted when people decide to take the plunge and start eating locally. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think um – I'm, I'm always really um, gratified that people really do want to eat local. They want to support local businesses. And I think during this, this uh, pandemic, you're seeing people really want to step out and, and, and support local businesses. So I think, um, you know, for us, we do have some wider distribution, but our, our business, our, the backbone of our business is really our local customers and, and that local customer loyalty. And, and so it's, um, that buy local, um, and I know it affects all all the um, producers, the farms, and, and the craft beer brewers, and everything. But that that local um, sense of community involvement, and that you're getting your food from where you know it comes from, um, that's that's pretty much is our business. So it's really huge for us. And and so uh, the co-op, Littleton Co-op, doing this kind of uh, eat local month is is great for us. It really highlights um, how important local businesses are. I'm glad to hear that information that we're doing something. <laughs> That's always good to hear. 
and in my experience, I don't know if you feel differently, but in my experience, I think a lot of the Eat Local movement focuses on food. I mean, it's right in the name, like Eat Local, and it doesn't necessarily focus it on beverages, and it even really hones in on that farm food, like, you know, the fresh produce, meat, things like that. So do you ever feel left out of the Eat Local movement being kind of like the opposite end of being not a food and not really on a farm? Uh, you know, not really. And I think it's part of that feeling that we're kind of halfway in the craft beer world and halfway in the in the farm world. And I think there's that sense of, you know, buying that Vermont beer or that it's maybe not as local as the Northeast Kingdom as far as a, a sense with craft beer. But um, but I do feel like um, and also because we, we cross paths with a lot of uh, local producers, a lot of farms, I, I feel like we're kind of right in that realm. So I, I, don't, I don't feel like we're left out at all. We're, we're a different product, obviously, but we, we do make it uh, locally and it, it, is a, it is a natural product um, with, with all fresh ingredients. So I, I think we're kind of right in that same, same ballpark. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, so we sell the cans and bottles of your kombucha at the Wilson Food Co-op. And aside from being one of our local varieties of kombucha, what makes your product different from the rest? Uh, our product is, is different um, than pretty much everything out there for a couple of reasons, I, w- I would say. Um, we, we're brewing our kombucha just like you mentioned homebrewers, and, and we're pretty much doing it the same way. Um, we made a decision a couple of years back, rather than brewing bigger batches and trying to do more volume, that we would actually um, keep keep our same model of, you know, we're brewing in small brew pots, and we just keep adding brew pots. And it's, it's uh, fairly labor-intensive, but um, we really keep the quality of the flavor. I mean, each brew pot is its own batch, and, and we just uh, keep it small batch. So we're really focused on that, and we've just decided that we really don't want to sacrifice um, that quality for, for a more, I won't say industrial, but just a larger-scale model. So uh, that's that's one thing. And so we're really, uh, I think if you think of a home brewer and just keeping adding adding more and more to the to the to the uh, batch. That's how we're doing it. Um, and another uh, reason that we're different is um, we're, we do brew with maple, so I think that's kind of something new. And we're really excited uh, to have some local ingredients in our products. So we're able to source our maple syrup lo- locally. Um, it's, it took some some refining to get that process down, but uh, we're really excited with the result. Maple's uh, much less processed, and it's much healthier sugar. Um, and it's one of the few things we can actually source locally. So uh, those are a couple of reasons. It just just as a family operation, we really are taking a lot of care to make sure that everything we put out there is is um, as best as we can make it. I really admire your commitment to, even though your product is so great and it really has the potential to go really big and have these big expansions that you're you're staying true to who you are as a company and what your product quality is and I think you can really really taste that. I also really laughed at the I read the story of how um you once said your biggest struggle was making sure your children weren't knocking over the brew pots because it literally was a home operation. Yeah, that is a struggle. Although now, now they're getting old enough where we're thinking about putting them to work a little more. But uh, you know, they have that that school hanging around. They have to do that as well. But 
Um, uh, they're not knocking over as much stuff, but they're drinking as much as we're making as well. So that's another another challenge. <laughs> <laughs> they just keep uh, the challenges just keep evolving. Yeah, yeah, but it's fun. <laughs> so as I had said um, earlier, I'm also a little new to the kombucha scene myself, but I tried your kombucha. I've had it before, and I'm a particular fan of the blueberry one. Um, could we talk a little okay. bit about what goes into the process of making either that one specifically or a specific one of your kombucha flavors? Sure. I'm glad you love the blueberry. That's that's one of our maple brews. So um, rather than brewing with, with uh, sugar, which many um, people, I think it's the, the standard, we actually use maple syrup and brew, uh, brew batches of maple syrup. Um, and then we do, a, uh, as kombucha brewers will know, it's called a secondary ferment where you, you add your flavoring and you let it ferment a little more. Um, and that's that's how we create the blueberry flavor, and that's that's pretty much how we we create all our flavors. Um, and it, each flavor is a little different. For instance, our ginger, um, we actually puree the ginger and soak it in 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 the kombucha for a couple of days to try to really get that ginger flavor in there. So each one each one has starts out with a standard brewing process, um, and then from there, depending on the flavor, we we kind of go from that there. Uh, do you know what your best-selling variety is? Yeah, ginger is our best-selling variety. Um, so that's uh, people love ginger, and uh, and I think our ginger, because of the the time we take with it, is is really popular. Uh, and all the others, I think, are are close behind. But ginger, I think, is a, is a sure thing anywhere. I have to admit, I've never really explored the like ginger half of the kombuchas, but I feel like after hearing that, I'm going to go down and grab one and try it <laughs> to see what the, what the people think of it. Um, what's your personal favorite? Well, as the person and, and and as part of the family that created all the flavors, um, it's hard to choose. Um, and I, I do love the ginger. I, I really love them all. Of course, I'm going to say that. Um, and our, our most recent one is passion fruit, which I, I'm really excited about. It's a very uh, kind of a citrusy, um, very fresh flavor. I think it really pairs well with that kombucha taste. So that, that's our latest. And I'm really excited about that one. That just came out this summer. Uh, so now we have six flavors, and I think um, I feel pretty good about what, what we have as far as a range of things to offer, and we're just excited to kind of um, just work with what we have for now. I think uh, uh, we're we're in a good spot, but um, my kids will tell you they also like the blueberry, um, and my wife likes the ginger, so it just depends on your, your flavor, your taste. Yeah. Um, so obviously things right now um, for the whole world, and I'm also assuming you, are in a little bit of a standby. Um, and I know you had mentioned uh, your interest in getting more involved in environmental education. Um, but what else is next for Kingdom Kombucha? Um, maybe not next month or next year, but the long term, what's happening next? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we have had to face um, 
and I know all businesses have faced this uncertainty um, going forward. So there's there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, uh, as a family business, we we're, we feel pretty secure um, that we're gonna we're gonna continue to to make great kombucha and and, and try to grow our business. So so on, on the business end of it, we're gonna continue to to try to grow and reach more people. And eventually, it would be great to to add some local jobs and and uh, you know get a little bit bigger, but not too big. That 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 would be a business goal um, going forward. And really want to focus on the environmental education going forward. That's that's another thing we're we're really excited about. Um, but basically, we're 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 just loving life in the Northeast Kingdom. We're really lucky to be here. So it's, if uh, we can keep doing what we're doing and, and just reach more people, that's that's our plan for now. That's awesome to hear. I really think more people need to be reached with this. Um, so how can people stay connected to you and to Kingdom Kombucha? after hearing this episode and maybe buying a can or bottle themselves? Uh, well, thanks for asking. Um, people can always email us um, at um, kingdomkombucha at gmail.com. And also we have a website at kingdomkombucha.com, and we have a, um, a message uh, uh, there that you can fill out. And we're, we're pretty responsive. So uh, if anybody has any questions about the product or where they can find it or just anything about brewing kombucha, we certainly love to hear from people. That's awesome. Well, Matt, I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk with me. It was so cool to hear about what it's like to make kombucha and what it's like to be a local producer here in our area. For our listeners, if you want to try the variety of Kumbit kombucha we have at the co-op, you can find their cans and bottles in the beverage section of aisle seven. Thanks again, Matt. Anastasia, thanks a lot. It was great. Great being with you. I appreciate it. I hope you all enjoyed hearing from some of our resident local experts for this episode. I know I really enjoyed talking to all of them. I just have to give another thank you to Samantha of the New Hampshire Food Alliance, Eric of Joesbrook Farm, and Matt of Kingdom Kombucha. Now we want to hear from you. First, tell us about your experiences eating local. What are your must-have local products? Why do you buy locally? What were your thoughts on this year's Eat Local Month? Second, we're always open to hearing your feedback about the podcast. Tell us more about what you're liking so far, who else you want to hear from, products we should feature, and burning questions we can answer. You can reach out to us via email, marketing at littletoncoop.org, on Instagram at littleton underscore co-op, or on Facebook, Littleton Food Co-op. I'm going to go eat some local tomatoes now, so until next time, remember to eat, sleep, and be rad. That's Rad is a production of the Littleton Food Co-op. Anastasia Marr directs and hosts. Jesse Smith and Annie Stewart produce. Becky Colpitz provides unrelenting positivity and moral support. The Littleton Food Co-op is Littleton, New Hampshire's community-owned grocery store. We put our money where your mouth wants to be. Local farms, of course. No membership is required to shop here. 
Come check us out sometime, just off exit 41 at 43 Bethlehem Road in Littleton. Or if you're online, check us out at littletoncoop.com.